You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is Lecture 5, The Proclamations to the Magi and the Shepherds, given in Stuttgart on the 1st of January, 1921. We will turn our thoughts today to the festival, which every year revives remembrance of the mystery of Golgotha. There are, in fact, three such festivals in the Christian year, Christmas, Easter, and Whitsuntide. Each of these festivals brings us into a different relation with the great events from which the whole of earth evolution receives purpose and meaning. Each of them also has a different effect upon our soul. The Christmas festival is connected more directly with our life of feeling. In a certain sense, it has the most popular appeal of all the festivals. When rightly understood, it deepens the life of feeling and is most universally accessible to us. The Easter festival makes the greatest demands upon our powers of understanding, because here some measure of insight is essential into the mystery of Golgotha itself, into how a supersensible being entered the stream of earthly evolution. Easter is a festival which lifts human understanding to the highest level. Though it is, of course, celebrated everywhere, its appeal can never be as widespread as that of Christmas. Through the Whitsun festival, relationship is established between the will and the supersensible world to which the Christ being belongs. A true sense for this festival can make us aware of the origin of our will impulses, which then affect and influence the world. These festival times, then, illuminate the Christian mystery in a threefold way. There are many aspects of the Christmas mystery, and over the years we have studied them from different points of view, particularly during the Christmas festival. Today we will look at an aspect which the Gospels can make clear to us. The Gospels tell of two proclamations of the birth of Christ Jesus. The one proclamation is made to the simple shepherds in the fields, to whom in dream or in some kindred way an angel announces the birth. In this case the event was perceived through inner soul forces of a particular kind, which these shepherds possessed. The other proclamation is made to the three kings, the three magi from the east, who, the gospel tells us, follow the voice of a star announcing to them that Christ Jesus has come into the world. Here we have an indication of two ways in which higher knowledge came to the people of earlier times. This is something which the modern mind has no understanding for. The idea prevailing nowadays is that our faculties of apprehension and thinking, our inner powers of soul, have for thousands and thousands of years been fundamentally the same as they are today, except that in earlier times they were more primitive. 
but we know from spiritual science that the tenor and mood of the human soul has undergone great changes in the course of the ages. In times of antiquity, let us say about six or seven thousand years ago, man had a quite different conception, not only of his own life, but also of the universe around him. His attitude of soul underwent continual evolution and change until in the modern world it arrived at intellectual analysis and a purely physical conception of things in the outer world. This evolution proceeded from an instinctive clairvoyance in ancient times. After passing through the phase of our present soul state, we will, in the future, return to a form of clairvoyant perception of the world pervaded by full, clear consciousness. At the time when the mystery of Golgotha took place on the earth, the old instinctive clairvoyance had already become weak and dim. Nevertheless, the human soul still differed from the state in which it exists today. People were no longer able to apply the old forms of wisdom in seeking for intimate and exact knowledge of the world. The teachings of ancient wisdom as well as the faculties of instinctive clairvoyance had lost their power when the mystery of Golgotha took place. Echoes still survive, though, as the Gospels clearly indicate, if we understand them aright. Echoes of the ancient wisdom survived here and there in certain exceptional individuals. Such individuals might well have been simple shepherds in the fields, whose devout purity of heart possessed a certain power of clairvoyance, which came over them like a dream. They could, equally, have been individuals who had reached the heights of learning, like the three magi from the East, in whom the ancient faculty to gaze into the flow of cosmic happenings had been preserved. In a kind of dream condition, the simple shepherds in the fields were able to have an inner vision of what was drawing near in the event of the birth of Christ Jesus. The three magi from the east, on the other hand, drew upon their knowledge in order to understand the phenomena of the heavens. By so doing, they could become aware of a significant event taking place on earth, one that far transcended the ordinary. Our attention is, therefore, directed to two definite but quite distinct forms of knowledge. Let us look, firstly, at the knowledge possessed by the three magi, as a last remnant of an ancient wisdom. We are clearly shown how these magi were able to read the secrets of the movements of the stars. The story points to an ancient lore of the stars, an ancient knowledge of the secrets of the world of stars, which could also reveal the secrets of human existence. This ancient lore of the stars was different from our modern astronomical science, although in a certain respect it too is prophetic in that eclipses of the sun, of the moon, and the like can be predicted. But it speaks only of conditions and relationships in space and time in so far as they can be expressed in terms of mathematics, whereas ancient star lore, observed in the motions of the heavens, the influences upon temporal, physical human life, which originate beyond space and time. 
It was this star wisdom that formed the essential content of the wisdom of an earlier epoch. People sought in the stars for explanations of what was happening on the earth. But to such people the world of stars was not the machine-like abstraction it has now come to be. Every planet was felt to have reality of being. In a kind of inner speech of the soul, people of old conversed, as it were, with each planet, just as today we converse with one another in ordinary speech. They realized that the movements of the stars in the universe were reflected and experienced in their inmost soul. This was a living, spirit-inwoven conception of the universe. The human being felt that his soul and spirit had their place within this universe. Such wisdom was also cultivated in mystery schools, where the pupils were prepared carefully and intimately to understand the movements of the stars in such a way that human life on earth became intelligible to them. What form did these preparations take? Pupils, even in the days of instinctive clairvoyance, were given a foundation for understanding the stars and their influences, which consisted in developing more wakefulness than was usual at that time. The common people possessed faculties of instinctive clairvoyance, which were natural in a life of soul less awake than our own. In ancient times the wide-awake thinking of today would not have been possible, nor could mathematics or geometry be grasped in the way they are grasped by the modern mind. All of life between birth and death was a kind of dreamlike existence. But for that very reason, people had a far more living awareness of the world around them than is possible in our fully wide-awake consciousness. And strange as it seems, in the age which lasted into the second millennium, or even as late as the beginning of the first millennium B.C., it was to the last surviving remains of this age that men like the three magi belonged, individual pupils in the mysteries were initiated into a kind of knowledge resembling our geometrical or mathematical sciences. It was Euclid who first gave geometry to the world at large. But it had already been cultivated for thousands of years in the mysteries, where it was communicated to chosen pupils only. It had a different effect on them, however, than on people of later times. Paradoxical as it seems, it is nevertheless a fact that the geometry and arithmetic learned by children today was taught in the mysteries to individuals specially chosen from the masses on account of their particular gifts, who were then received into the mysteries. One often hears it said today that the ancient mystery teachings were secret and veiled, in their abstract content, however, these so-called secret teachings were no different from what is now taught to children at school. The mystery does not lie in the fact that these things are unknown today, but that they were imparted to human beings in a different way. To teach the principles of geometry to children by calling upon the intellect in an age when, from the moment of waking until that of falling asleep, the human being has clear day consciousness, is a very different matter 
from imparting them to pupils specially chosen for their greater awareness in an age of instinctive clairvoyance and dreamlike consciousness. A true conception of these things is rarely in evidence today. In Eastern literature there is a hymn to the god Varuna, which says that Varuna is revealed in the air and in the winds blowing through the forests, in the thunder rolling from the clouds, in the human heart when it is kindled to acts of will, in the heavens when the sun passes across the sky, and is present on the hills in the Soma juice. You will generally find it stated in books today that nobody knows what this Soma juice really is. Modern scholars assert that nobody knows what Soma juice is, although as a matter of fact there are people who drink it by the liter and from a certain point of view are quite familiar with it. But to know things from the vantage point of the mysteries is quite different from knowing them as a layman from the standpoint of ordinary waking consciousness. You may read today about the, in quotes, philosopher's stone, for which men sought in an epoch when understanding of the nature of substances was very different from what it is today. And again, those who write about alchemy assert that nothing is known about the philosopher's stone. Here and there in my lectures I have said that this philosopher's stone is quite familiar to most people, only they do not know what it really is, nor why it is so-called. It is quite well known, because as a matter of fact, it is used by the tongue. The modern mind, with its tendency to abstraction and theory and its alienation from reality, is incapable of grasping these things. Nor is there any understanding of what it means to receive geometrical mathematical knowledge into an aware soul state that is quite different from the modern one. In my book titled Christianity is Mystical Fact, I have indicated the special nature of the mystery teachings. These significant matters are not, as a rule, correctly understood. They are taken too superficially. The way in which the subject matter of the mystery teachings in ancient times was imparted is what needs to be understood. Novalis was still aware of the human element, the element of feeling, in mathematics, which in utter contrast to the vast majority of people today he regarded as being akin to a great and wonderful poem. Footnote, quote, None really comprehend mathematics who do not undertake the study with reverence and devotion as a revelation from God, close quote, from Title Thoughts on Physics. End of footnote. The pupil of the ancient mysteries was led to an understanding of the world imbued with feeling, but expressed in mathematical forms. And when this mathematical understanding of the universe had developed in such a pupil, he became one whose vision resembled that of the three magi from the East. The mathematics of the universe, which to us has become pure abstraction, then appeared as living reality, because this knowledge was supplemented and enriched by something that came to meet it. The outer knowledge of an ancient culture, whose last echoes survived in the Magi, 
was the origin of the one proclamation, issuing from a wisdom and knowledge about the outer universe. On the other side, an inner experience of the secrets of humanity could arise in people who were specially endowed with the necessary faculties. Such people were the shepherds in the fields. Their inner forces must have reached a certain stage of development and then instinctive, imaginative perception became direct vision. And so, through their faculty of inner vision, the simple shepherds in the fields were made aware of the proclamation, quote, the God is revealing himself in the heavenly heights, and through him there can be peace among all men who are of good will. Secrets of the cosmos were thus revealed to the hearts of the simple shepherds in the fields, as well as to those who were the representatives of the highest wisdom attainable by the human mind at that time. The great mystery of earth existence was proclaimed from two sides. What was it that came to the knowledge of the Magi? What kind of faculties developed in specially prepared pupils of the mysteries through the mathematics imparted to their souls? The philosopher Kant says of the truths of mathematical science that they are a priori. By this he means that they are attained before external empirical knowledge and experience. This is so much lip wisdom. Kant's a priori really says nothing. The expression has meaning only when we realize through spiritual scientific knowledge that mathematics comes from within ourselves, rises into consciousness from within our own being. And where does it originate? in the experiences through which we passed in the spiritual world before conception, before birth. We were living then in the great universe, experiencing what it was possible to experience before we possessed bodily eyes and bodily ears. Our experiences then were a priori, a form of cognition independent of earthly life. And this is the kind of experience that rises up unconsciously today from our inmost being. We do not know, unless, like Novalis, we glimpse it intuitively, that the experiences of the life before birth or conception rise up in us when we are engrossed in mathematical thought. For one who can truly apprehend these things, mathematical cognition is in itself a proof that before conception and birth we existed in a spiritual world. It must be said that those to whom this is no proof of a life before birth do not think deeply and fundamentally enough about the phenomena and manifestations of life and have not the faintest inkling of the real origin of mathematics. Pupils of the ancient mysteries, absorbing the kind of wisdom whose last echoes survived in the three magi from the east, had this clear impression, quote, If, as we contemplate the stars, we see in them the expressions of mathematical arithmetical progression, we infuse outer space with the experiences through which we lived before birth. Living here on the earth, we gaze out into the universe, beholding all that is around us in space. 
before birth we lived within these manifestations of cosmic realities, lived with the mysteries of number connected with the stars, and with all that we can now only mentally picture in terms of mathematics. In that other existence our own inner forces led us from star to star. We had our very life in what is now only a mental activity. Close quote. Steiner again. Such contemplation made vividly real to these men what they had lived through before birth, and these experiences were sacred to them. They knew that this other world was a spiritual world, their home before they came down to the earth. The last echoing remains of this knowledge had survived in the Magi from the East, and through it they recognized the signs of the coming of Christ. Whence came the Christ being? He came from the world in which we ourselves live, between death and a new birth, and united himself with a life that extends from birth to death. Knowledge of the world in which we live between death and a new birth can therefore shed light upon an event like the mystery of Golgotha. And it was through this knowledge that the mystery of Golgotha, the Christmas mystery, was announced to the Magi. While we live on the earth and unfold the forces which bring knowledge of the world around us, while we unfold the impulses for our actions and social life, we are unconsciously experiencing something else as well. We have no knowledge of it, but just as we experience the after-effects of life before birth, so we also experience what finally passes through the gate of death to, to become the content of the life after death. These forces are already present in germ between birth and death, but come to full bloom only in the life after death. They were intensely active in the old instinctive clairvoyance, and in their last echoes they were still working in the simple shepherds because of their purity of heart. We live within the play of these forces above all during sleep, when the soul moves beyond the body into the outer universe. This is the same form of existence in which the soul will live consciously after death when the physical body has been laid aside. These forces, which in certain conditions can penetrate into waking life from the world of sleep and dream, were very active in the old instinctive clairvoyance. They were at work in the simple shepherds, to whom the mystery of Golgotha was revealed, but in a different way than to the three magi. The forces active in the human being between death and a new birth can also be kindled during earthly life. This was the case with the three magi. When it occurs, one can experience what is happening beyond the earth. The human being is transported from the earth into the world of the stars, in which he lives between death and a new birth. This was the world into which the three magi from the east were transported, away from the earth into the heavens. And the forces which well up from our inmost being above all in the world of dream, bring knowledge of what is coming to pass within the earth itself. In this kind of knowledge it is earthly forces that are most strongly at work, the forces we have through our body, through existence in the body, 
These forces are particularly active during sleep, when we are also within the outer universe, but an outer universe that is especially connected with the earth. You will say, this contradicts the statement that during sleep we are outside the body, but in reality there is no contradiction. We perceive only what is outside us, not what we live within. Only those who lack real knowledge are satisfied with glib phrases which assert that it is meaningless to base spiritual science upon knowledge acquired outside the human being, that what really matters is a knowledge of outer nature gained through the forces within. In quote, schools of wisdom, like the one in Darmstadt, may be based on high-sounding principles of this kind, but founding such a school of wisdom does not prevent one from remaining a mere phrase-monger. It is true that we must acquire the inner nature of the world before we can acquire supersensible knowledge, but we must first look back upon our inner world from without, from outside the body. Men like Kaiserling speak of the need to view things from the vantage point of the soul, but they do not penetrate into the inmost being of a man. They simply pour out phrases. The truth is that during sleep we look back, feel back, as it were, into our body. We become aware of how our body is connected with the earth, for it is, after all, of the earth. The revelation to the shepherds in the fields was the revelation given by the earth, proceeding from their bodily nature. In a state of dream, the voice of the angel made known to them what had come to pass. And it is entirely in keeping with the mystery of Golgotha that its revelation came from two sides, to the Magi through heavenly lore and to the shepherds through the earth. For a heavenly being, a being who until then had not belonged to the earth, was drawing near, and the coming, the descent of such a being, must be recognized through wisdom of the heavens. The wisdom of the shepherds is knowledge proceeding from the earth. The weaving life of the earth becomes aware of the coming of the being from heaven. It is the same proclamation, only from another side, a wonderful twofold proclamation to mankind of a single event. The way in which the event of Golgotha was received and understood by mankind is to be explained by the fact that only vestiges of the ancient wisdom remained. In the first centuries of our era, certain Gnostic teachings were able to shed light upon the mystery of Golgotha. But as time went on, people strove more and more to understand it through purely intellectual analysis and reason. And in the nineteenth century, a naturalistic approach gradually invaded this domain of belief. There was no longer any understanding for the supersensible reality of the event of Golgotha. Christ became the, quote, wise man of Nazareth, close quote, in a solely naturalistic sense. A new spiritual conception of the mystery of Golgotha became necessary. The reality of the mystery of Golgotha should not be confused with the attitude adopted to it by the human mind. At the time of the mystery of Golgotha, the sole mood of the shepherds and of the Magi was present 
in its last vestiges. Through the evolution of humanity it changed and was transformed. What has the wisdom possessed by the Magi from the East now become? It has become our mathematical astronomy. The Magi possessed super-earthly knowledge, which was actually a glorious remembrance of life before birth. This knowledge has shriveled away into our present conceptions of the heavens, to whose phenomena we apply only mathematical and mechanistic laws. Our modern mathematical astronomy is the metamorphosis of knowledge once possessed by the Magi. Our outer sense-given knowledge, conveyed as it is merely through eyes and ears, is the externalized form of the inner knowledge once possessed by the shepherds in the fields. The mood of soul in which the secrets of earth existence were once revealed to the shepherds now allows us to look at the world with the cold detachment of scientific observation. This kind of observation is the child of the shepherd wisdom, but the child is very unlike the parent. And our mathematical astronomy is the child of magi wisdom. It was necessary that humanity should pass through this phase. When our scientists conduct their cold, dispassionate researches in laboratories and clinics, they have very little in common with the shepherds of old. But their attitude of soul is, nevertheless, a metamorphosis leading back directly to the wisdom of the shepherds. And our mathematicians are the successors of and inheritors of the Magi from the East. The outer has become inward, the inner outward. In the process, understanding of the mystery of Golgotha has been lost, and we must be fully conscious of this fact. Many of those who claim to be official ministers of Christianity today have perhaps come furthest adrift from such understanding. The true reality of the event of Golgotha can no longer be grasped by the forces of knowledge, feeling and belief which we nowadays possess. This event must be discovered anew. The Magi wisdom has become inward. It has become our abstract mathematical science, by which alone the heavens are studied. What has become inward in this way must again be filled with life, recast, reshaped from within. And now, from this point of view, try to understand what is contained in a book like my title, Outline of Occult Science, Readers Aside, also known as Outline of Esoteric Science, End of Readers Aside. The Magi comprehended the starry worlds. Therein they beheld the spiritual. For they could view human experiences in the life before birth. In our mathematics this has become abstract. But the same forces that our mathematical thinking develops can again be filled with life, can be enriched and intensified in imaginative perception. Then from our own inner forces there will be born a world which, although we create it from within, will be for us an outer universe, embracing Saturn, Sun, Moon, Earth, Jupiter, Venus, Vulcan. We then behold the heavens through inner perception, inner vision, as the Magi, discern the secrets of the mystery of Golgotha through outer perception. The outer has become inward, 
has become mathematical abstraction. Therefore, what is now inward must be expanded into perception of the outer universe. Inward perception must lead to a new astronomy, to an astronomy inwardly experienced. It is only by striving in this way for a new understanding of Christ that we can truly celebrate the Christmas festival today. Can it be said that this festival still has any real meaning for the majority of people? It has become a beautiful custom to take the Christmas tree as symbol of the festival. This custom is, though, hardly a century old. What does it represent? When we endeavor to discover its meaning and find its origin in the tiny branch carried by Ruprecht, by St. Nicholas on the 6th of December, when we follow its history, it dawns upon us that the Christmas tree is directly connected with the tree of paradise. The mind turns to the tree of paradise, to Adam and Eve. This is one aspect of the way in which the mystery of Golgotha can again be proclaimed in our time. The mind turns from the mystery of Golgotha back to the world's beginning. The meaning of world redemption is not understood, and the mind turns back to the divine creation of the world. This comes to expression in the fact that the real symbol of Christmas, the crib, so beautifully presented in the Christmas plays of earlier centuries, is gradually superseded by the Christmas tree which is in reality the tree of paradise. The old religion of Jehovah usurped the place of Christianity and the Christmas tree is the symbol of its reappearance. This Jehovah religion, however, reappeared in a multiple and divided way. Jehovah was worshipped, and rightly worshipped, as the one undivided Godhead, in an age when his people felt themselves to be a single self-contained unity not looking beyond their own boundaries, yet full of the expectation that one day they would fill the whole earth. But in our time, although people speak of Christ Jesus, in reality they worship Jehovah. In the various nations, this was all too evident in the war, people spoke of Christ but were really venerating the original Godhead who holds sway in heredity and in the world of nature. Jehovah. The Christmas tree on the one hand and on the other national gods at a level inferior to that of Christian reality were the principles by which people's comprehension turned away from the mystery of Golgotha and reverted to conceptions of a much earlier epoch. The assertion of the principle of nationality, the claiming of national gods, denotes a step backward into the old Jehovah religion. Those who see fit to worship Christ as a national God are the ones who deny Him most deeply. Let us remember that the proclamations to the shepherds and to the kings contained a message for all mankind, for the earth is common to all. The revelation to the shepherds was from the earth and as such was a revelation that may not be differentiated according to nationality. The Magi received the proclamation from the sun and the heavens, which was also a revelation destined for all mankind. For when the sun has shone upon the territory of one people, it shines upon the territory of another. The heavens are common to all. The earth 
is common to all. What is common to all mankind awakens through Christianity. Such is the aspect of Christmas revealed by the twofold proclamation. When we think of the Christmas mystery, our minds must turn to a birth, to something that must be born anew in our time. True Christianity must be born anew. We need a Christmas festival of all the universe, and it is the intention of spiritual science to prepare the proper ground for such a festival among human beings. The end of Lecture 5